The last time that we were all together in Acts was way back at the end of October, if you can remember back that far. I know that we've had a lot happen since then. We had our Romans 13 series. We had our Christmas in the Psalms series. The last thing that we saw in the book of Acts was in chapter 9, verse 31, where the Bible says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so the gospel had moved from Jerusalem at Pentecost to the surrounding region of Judea, just as Jesus said it would. After the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, the church is dispersed by heated persecution led by a man named Saul. And as the church is scattered, of course, they take the good news with them. And so the gospel goes from Judea to Samaria, again, just as Jesus said that it would. In Acts chapter 9, we saw that man Saul, who was leading the persecution, dramatically converted on his way to Damascus, where he was going to persecute more Christians. But instead of persecuting more Christians, he gets there and he starts spreading Christianity. And he starts proclaiming the gospel himself. And with Saul's conversion, the heated period of persecution comes to an end, and the church gets this reprieve and experiences this time of peace, and there is multiplication. That's what Acts 9 verse 31 is talking about. Today we turn our attention to the remainder of chapter 9, and in it the focus is back on the Apostle Peter, which is no surprise because he really is the most prominent figure in the book of Acts in, verse, in uh, chapters 1 through 12. After chapter 12, Luke's narrative starts to turn more toward the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle Paul. The question I'm going to ask us today before we read from Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32, is, is God still at work in our world today? Is God still at work in and through His church today? These are questions that we might ask as we observe the world and as we read the Bible. Because we see so many evil and awful and terrible things in the world. So is God still at work in the midst of it the way that we see Him at work in His Word? We read the book of Acts, we see so many amazing and miraculous things and we might wonder... Is God still working in these powerful ways? Is the word still spreading? And is the spirit still raising dead hearts to life? Does the spirit work in the same way that he did in the age of the apostles? And if not, how is he working now? And then more personally, we might wonder, well, how is God using me? How is God going to use me in 2024? So we seek answers to these questions today and Acts chapter 9. I'll read our text and we're going to spend some time seeing how God worked through his apostles to continue the ministry of Jesus. We will see how God worked through the faithfulness of seemingly ordinary people to do extraordinary things. How God worked through the power of Christ to draw sinners to himself and we will consider how God is still doing these things today. So Acts 9 starting in verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. 
There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me to preach this morning. I pray that you would be in full control, Lord. I pray that your glory would be most important of the highest order as we go about this work this morning. I pray that you would help us to see the great truths that are in this text, I pray that we would look at it, God, if we've read it a hundred times, I pray we see it with fresh eyes this morning, that we would be people who have open ears, Lord, to your truth, that we would not be like a man who would look at his face in a mirror, see things that are wrong, and then walk away, and just leave them, but that we would deal with our souls as we examine them in light of your word this morning. I pray also, God, you would encourage us and we can be used by you. Even if we're people who are struggling, for people who feel down and out, for people who feel like God's done using us, I pray, God, that we would see this morning you're not, and that there's breath in our lungs, that there is work for us to do for you and that you, indeed, are still at work. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, we have two miracles that occur. In verses 32-35, we have the healing of Aeneas. And then in 36-43, the account of Tabitha, or Dorcas's healing. In verse 32, Peter is described as going here and there among them all, and that is referring to his apostolic mission. He is an apostolic missionary to the region that is described back in verse 31. He's going throughout the churches in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and he is ministering. He is proclaiming the gospel in the power of the Spirit, just as he has been doing since Pentecost. And he comes down to the saints at Lydda. Lydda was on its way to uh, the harbor city of Joppa, 
And Peter is going to end up there by the end of the chapter. You may remember Joppa is the place where Jonah went to when he was running away from his calling to preach to the Ninevites. It was about a day's journey from Jerusalem. And so he finds a man who is named Aeneas. He's been bedridden for eight years because he's paralyzed. He's probably a believer. He seems to be mentioned in connection with the saints who live in Lydda. His being paralyzed was probably the result of a stroke or a fall because those would be the two most common reasons somebody would be paralyzed as an adult in that time. In verse 34, you see this miracle that occurs. Peter calls him by his name and says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. And he speaks in the present tense, meaning Jesus Christ is healing you right now. He's at work right now. Making it clear, this is not Peter doing this miracle. The power is not in him. The power comes from Jesus. And Jesus, who has died and who is resurrected and who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, is still working through Peter. Peter tells him to rise and to make his bed. Only the power of God could take legs that haven't worked in eight years and restore them in this manner. Only the power of God could bring this man's affliction to its end. And it's significant that Peter says to him to rise and to make his bed because for eight years other people would have been making Aeneas' bed. That's not something he would have been able to do for himself. But now the affliction is over and he can make it himself. And in verse 35, you see the effect this has on Lydda and this has on Sharon, the, uh, the coastal plain region that was around Joppa. The people in that region, they would have known Aeneas. They probably would have seen him in the marketplace if he was a part of the church. Imagine what this church would have done in the first century, right? If you had somebody that needed to go to the marketplace, they can't walk, and you, know, you don't have a car, right? He would be carried most likely be carried by his friends into the marketplace. He could get the things that he needed so that he could be a part of society. Possibly they would have even seen him out doing ministry with the church, being carried by faithful brothers and sisters. He had a reputation of being paralyzed. And now suddenly he's upright and he's walking on his own. This would have been a great testimony to the wonder-working power of the Spirit of Jesus. So it causes a multitude in the region to turn to the Lord. The second miracle takes place in Joppa. There's a woman there named Tabitha. That's her Aramaic name. Her Greek name is Dorcas, and in both languages that means gazelle. And her life is summed up in a very complimentary sentence in verse 36. I was struck this week as I read this, and I thought, man, if somebody had to sum up your life in a sentence, what would they say? It's kind of a daunting thought. Well, Luke here sums up this woman by saying she was full of good works and acts of charity. You actually see her works and charity on display after she has passed away, after she has died, because there are widows from the church weeping at her bedside, literally holding the garments that she had made for them. The fact that she is able to give 
that she is able to make clothing for widows. It may hint that she was a woman of some means, and the fact that there is no husband mentioned may indicate that she was a widow herself. But we learn in verse 37, she has fallen ill, she has died, and her friends and her family have washed her, they have prepared her for uh, burial. But before they bury her body and lay her to rest, they have two disciples go and find Peter and Lydda. Must have heard that he was there. Maybe they even uh, heard the story of Aeneas' healing. Maybe it reached them. Whatever, it is, uh, whatever the reason is, they send, us, they, they send out for him because they think he can do something about the situation. I don't know any other reason that they would call for him. I don't think it's just to come and perform the funeral. So they urge him to come without delay, and he does. He goes with them. He's taken to the room where his dear sister's body is lying dead. And Peter's actions are described in seven Greek verbs in this text. The first five are all in verse 40. First of all, he puts the widows out of the room. Secondly, he gets down on his knees, demonstrating that he is submissive to God He also prays, showing he is relying on the power of God, not not any power of his own. He turns to Tabitha, and then he uses her Aramaic name, and he says, Tabitha, arise. Literally means, get up. Then we have Tabitha's reaction described in three Greek verbs in verse 40. She opens her eyes. She looks at Peter. Both of them must have been quite stunned. (laughs) She sits up. And then the two final actions from Peter in the healing are in verse 41. He gives her his hand. He raises her up or he helps her up. And then he calls all of the widows and any other saints that were present back into the room and he presents her alive. He presents Dorcas as an evidence of the amazing power of Christ to not just heal but to bring the dead back to the land of the living as the resurrection and the life. And the response in Joppa is the same as it was with the healing of Aeneas in Lydda. The news spreads and many are believing in the Lord in verse 42. This text is amazing. We, we can't read stuff like this and just go, ah, it's just Bible stuff. right? I think we can do that, particularly if you've maybe come to church for a while, been in Sunday school for a while, if if you've never really come to church and you're here today and you're reading the Bible for maybe the first time, this is probably jumping off the page of you. You're like, really? Really? This happened? But if you've been around it a bit, you've gone through the quarterlies, if you will, you can just kind of gloss over this stuff, like, yeah, another miracle in the Bible. Either this happened or the Bible is telling us fantastical tales. If these are fantastical tales, we can't trust the Word of God. But if this really happened, then you can't ignore the Word of God. You can't ignore the sort of power that is on display here. Luke's either telling the truth or he's not, and the Spirit who inspired him to write is telling the truth or he's not. It's true. Christ is at work in a powerful way in this passage. And we want to look at three different ways we see him at work. Number one, God worked through the ministry of his apostle. 
He worked through the ministry of his apostle. It is so clear that God is using this instance to show that the ministry of Christ is continuing through the apostles of his church. And to really see this, you've got to hold this up next to Matthew chapter 9. Go to Matthew 9. It says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Because who can forgive sin but God? When Jesus on the spot looks at people and says, Your sins are forgiven, he might as well be saying, I am God, I have the authority to forgive sin, and I am forgiving you. And so they cry out, this is blasphemous. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. It's very similar to the miracle that we see with Aeneas in Acts 9. We have a paralytic that is being healed. We have the same sort of language, rise and pick up your bed, and we have the witnesses of the miraculous giving glory to God as a result. And then we have this later in chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. This is very similar to what occurs with Tabitha, with Dorcas. We have someone who is dying. We have Jesus being requested. We have a crowd being put outside. We have the dead girl being taken by the hand and rising. We have a region hearing about what has occurred. I think that the parallels between these two passages are undeniable. The question is, why? Why would God want Peter to work these two miracles in a manner that is so similar to Christ? And why would it be important for this to happen at this juncture of the early church's history? Well, in seeking to answer those questions, we got to go to, again, what Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1, verse 8, where he said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The idea there is that Jesus is going to ascend... The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on the church. And as the church goes forth witnessing, the Spirit of the Lord is working through them and is carrying on the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
Meaning that though Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and He is not on the earth in the flesh any longer, He is still at work in the world. Now how can the church be sure of this? How can the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in Judea, be sure of this? What evidence is there that the Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah died, rose again, and is still using His power to build His kingdom? This is where the unique role of the apostles comes into play. The healing and the resurrection that we see here in this text are unique. You know, the Bible, if if you exclude the final resurrection that's going to come at the return of Christ, the Bible only tells us of ten resurrections. And all of them occur during the time of Elijah and Elisha, or in the time of Jesus and the apostles. All of them. Why? Because these were periods in redemption history in which it was important for God's servants and God's word to be confirmed in the miraculous. In the case of Elijah, the nation is on the brink of full-on apostasy. They are on the brink of completely walking away from God. And the high volume of miracles in his generation demonstrated the power of God and that Israel must return to him. And it confirmed that Elijah was God's man to call them back. And that he was preaching a word from a God who must be obeyed. In the case of his successor, Elisha, the high volume of miraculous signs confirmed that he was carrying on the work of Elijah, and that God's love was still being poured out on his adulterous people as he graciously was giving them the word through the prophet. Of course, the miracles of Christ confirm his identity, that he is the prophet, the priest, and the king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the cornerstone who was foretold by the prophets. And in Acts, As we're reading through the narrative of Acts, the miracles performed in the apostolic age attest to the fact that the foundation of the church is being laid. Though Christ has ascended, His Spirit is still building His kingdom through His servants. Not saying that there's no miracles in the rest of the Bible. What we're saying is that there's a high volume in these two periods, and you could also add the period in which Moses was serving and 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 Moses was doing his work in the book of Exodus lest we be confused about whether or not the apostles are carrying on the work of Christ we get this parallel with Matthew 9 and Acts 9 It, it leaves no doubt that Peter is healing and that that Peter is resurrecting in the manner of Christ that he's doing this in the power of Christ. It leaves no doubt that the same Jesus from Matthew 9 is at work in Acts 9, and that is especially important because of what we read in verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So what's so important about that? Well, because he's going to be at this house, and what we're going to see in a couple of weeks, actually we'll see next week, is that... God will speak to Peter. He will give him a vision. The vision will have all these animals running around in this sheet. And he'll tell Peter, you get up, you rise, you kill, you eat. 
And Peter will see clean and unclean animals, and he'll say, no way, God. I've never put anything unclean according to the dietary restrictions of the law to my lips. I'm not about to start now. But what Peter's going to learn is that not only was this vision about the fact that all food was being declared clean, was that all people were no longer to be counted as common, but instead they all should be counted as people that the gospel should go to. That the gospel is going to break through every single boundary of ethnicity. That the gospel is for all. And there's going to be people in the church that are Jewish they are going to have a big problem with this. They're like, what do you mean? You're telling me that suddenly these non-Jewish Gentiles, they're in on the promise? They're receiving the covenant love of God? Seriously? Not unless they get circumcised first. And Peter will be able to tell them that the same spirit that the apostles received is the same spirit that the Gentiles are receiving. And the miracles that Peter's doing here and the power of Christ on display in Peter here show that Jesus is with Peter. And that as Jesus goes to Cornelius' house, the power of Christ is working through Peter. That he is God's man doing God's work, building God's church, and that Gentiles are to be a part of it. That Jesus is doing his saving work among Jewish and non-Jewish people. And so all of this shows to us that the apostolic age was a unique period in New Testament history. The foundation of the church was being laid. The canon of Scripture was not closed yet. All of the Bible had not been written. It had not been settled within the church in a peaceful way that Jew and Gentile were both to be together in the spiritual household of God. And so these signs and wonders were necessary to confirm the men that were doing that foundational work in the church. Laying the foundation, building the church, writing the scriptures, preaching the gospel not just in Jerusalem and Judea, but in Samaria and to the end of the earth. We should not expect to read the book of Acts and that what we see there is normative for the church today. I'm not saying that God would not raise someone from the dead. I'm not saying that God would not give somebody the ability to speak in a foreign tongue they do not know for the sake of confirming gospel witness. Instead, I'm saying that we would not expect those things to be the norm in the church today. They would be exceptions. We would not expect to see them occurring with regularity as we see in the book of Acts. And you might wonder, well, why not? What has changed? Well, I mentioned it a moment ago, but one of the most important things that has changed is that we have in our hands the completed Word of God. We have the full canon of the Bible. It's completed by the end of the, apostles, uh, the Apostle John's life, it, and he is the final apostle to pass away. And now, when someone stands up and says, I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to tell you about the Lord. I'm going to tell you about his revelation. You don't go, well, do a sign and wonder here. We need to make sure that what you're saying is from the Lord. Instead, we turn to the Bible, which is our rule of faith. It's perfect. It will not fail us. 
It is without error. It is sufficient. And because it's in the hands of the church, the regular sign gifts are no longer necessary. The foundation has been laid. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ is the cornerstone. Peter and the apostles lay the foundation along with the prophets of the early church. And once the foundation is laid, the need for this sort of unique apostolic witness no longer remains. Now we have the power of God's holy word. But make no doubt as you read these verses, the ministry of Christ is carrying on through his twelve who ministered in this incredible time of magnificent miracles. He's showing through them he is the resurrection and the life. He's showing through them that he is the great physician. But that being said, we should not look as the era that we live in as less than because we do not have apostles in the church today or because miraculous sign gifts are not normative. We should not understand everything that I've said here to mean that God is no longer working in power in His church. To the contrary, Christ is still alive and His Spirit still dwells in His people and His people are still serving Him and relying on His power as they are witnesses to the ends of the earth. Building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and Christ is the cornerstone. The New Testament has powerful things to say about the work that God does through you. We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his reconciling appeal to the world through us. We are his body and he is empowering us with all sorts of spiritual gifts that are still operating and active. We are described as a people that God is using to put his multifaceted, manifold wisdom on display through. And in Matthew 28, 18-20, we learn that we are going in authority, commissioned by Christ to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that the Lord has taught us. That's just a few of the ways in which the Lord is powerfully glorifying himself through his church. And with the complete word of God in our hand, we have sufficient direction and we have the sufficient revelation we need to carry on the work until he returns or he calls us home. In fact, this is better. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. With the perfect word of God coming to us, it's like the church has grown up and graduated. The believers of the early church would have longed to live with God's full self-revelation in their hands, complete and closed. Along these lines, we can also find encouragement in this passage for how God loves to use ordinary and faithful people, whether it be in the apostolic age or in this age. So number two, God worked through the 
ordinary faithfulness of people to do extraordinary things. And I put ordinary in sarcastic quotation marks because I've yet to really meet the ordinary Christian. When the Spirit of God is dwelling in someone, they're far from ordinary. But for the sake of just understanding that we're all people here, I'll use the term. First and most obviously, we have a leader of the church here setting the pace in obedience to the Lord, right? In verse 32, Peter's going around like this sort of pastor missionary. He's going here and there. He's teaching. He's making disciples. Reminds us of John Bunyan, who we learned about last week, earned the name Bishop Bunyan in the last 10 years of his life because he would preach everywhere. He'd preach in his own church. He'd be in London 6 in the morning preaching to 3,000 people. He was all over the place. And so is Peter here. He's on the move. In verse 39, when two men come and ask Peter to come with them to Joppa, he goes immediately. In verse 40, as the healing is taking place, he's on his knees and he's praying, demonstrating that the power for this resurrection will come from Christ, not from Peter. We also have Tabitha or Dorcas. Her entire life is about doing good works in the name of King Jesus performing acts of charitable love to the world around her, evidenced by those widows clutching the provision she made for them as they're weeping over her death. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is the sort of religion that Tabitha practiced. Then we got these two brothers who went to get Peter in verse 38. They're seemingly the most forgettable part of the story, right? I mean, you got a resurrection going on. It's like, you know, these guys are just the messengers. But hey, they're the whole reason that Peter even knows what's going on with Tabitha. I want to encourage you to remember, these are people just like you. The apostles were unique, but let's not forget Peter was just a man and a sinful one at that. This is a man who tried to rebuke the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a man who pridefully stated, Jesus, I'll never deny you, only to do it three times. This is a man who, when Jesus comes to wash his feet, he says, never, Lord. And Jesus is like, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He's like, wash it all, Lord. He is depicted by the Scriptures as being incredibly human. Even next week, we're going to see how he is pondering this vision like he's really struggling with what is the meaning of this vision and there's no way for Luke to know that Peter had this internal struggle with the vision unless Peter told him he's a humble man but he was a human man and yet God is using him in such a memorable way again and again in the book of Acts the miracles he performs in this text are incredible but they are coming about through what we might just call ordinary faithfulness, a willingness to go, a dependence upon God in His praying posture, spoken words. Tabitha, similarly, has this incredible reputation, but she's not Wonder Woman. She's not from a different planet. She's not even an apostle. She's just a sister walking with the Lord, executing justice everywhere she goes, taking up the cause of the widow and the orphan because Christ took up her cause. Tabitha reminds me of Chip Byram, or Margaret Powers, or Colleen Reagans, or Jean McPherson. 
widows from this church who are now in heaven. They were just normal women who were faithful to God in seemingly ordinary ways. And yet they touched countless lives by simply obeying the Lord. Shirley Rawls. How many people came through that Sunday school class and were taught by her year after year after year? It's ordinary faithfulness on display. God using it in a powerful way. These two men, right? These guys are so ordinary, we don't even know their names. They're just the messengers. They're the Uber for the urgent news. And can you tell me the name of your Uber driver without opening the app five minutes after you leave the car? Rarely. Luke doesn't even put their names down here. But how important was their willingness to go, to go to Lydda, to get Peter? Not just for Tabitha, not just for her being resurrected, but for the glory of the Lord in redemption history, because this is recorded in the scriptures, and here we are rejoicing in it this morning. Without their obedience, Peter would not even known about Tabitha, and then all those people who came to Christ in the region as a result of the miracle would not have known about the miracle because it wouldn't have happened. They were important. Maybe it just looked like a, a, a cog in this whole thing. Unimportant, but they were actually incredibly important, and yet it's just ordinary faithfulness. See, God takes the ordinary faithfulness of ordinary people and does extraordinary things. And that should compel us to be steadfastly obedient in this coming year. You want to know if God is still at work in the world? Well, go obey His word. And you will find out. You will be amazed at how he will use your ordinary life to do incredible things. Your ordinary upward coaching. Your ordinary service in the kitchen. Your ordinary church invite to the server at your favorite restaurant. Your ordinary giving to your local church. The reality is, is we don't know but a sliver just a sliver of what God does with the faithfulness of our lives. There are more gold and silver and precious jewels being wrought out of your obedience than you will even realize in this life. But Judgment Day will reveal the trophies Christ has won through your obedience and your faithfulness. And yet in His grace, He lets us see and taste just a little bit of it now, doesn't He? With transformed lives and baptismal waters stirred and hearts encouraged and Christ glorified. And so do not underestimate what God can and will do with your regular old life. With your regular old obedience. You have the Spirit of God in you and you are not as regular as you think. So God used his apostle, and he's still using his church. God used the ordinary faithfulness of people. He's still doing that today. And finally, this morning, God used the power of Christ to draw sinners to himself. Aeneas is healed, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon turn to the Lord. All is hyperbolic here from Luke. doesn't mean every person. But it was so many people that it seemed like it was all of them. It seemed like the whole region had repented. Then in Joppa, Dorcas is healed. Many believed in the Lord. And so God takes these miracles in Acts 9 and he uses them just as he used Christ's miracles in Matthew 9. He draws sinners to himself through the display of his undeniable, mighty power.
power and authority. I mean, who else can raise the dead but the Lord? Who else can make lame legs run but the Lord? And so these verifiable miracles left the people who witnessed them in awe of God's power to heal. Left them in awe of the Spirit of Christ's power over death. And they're so in awe that they agree with God about the evil of their sin and they trust in the name of this Jesus whose power they have seen. I've never seen a dead man raised and I've never seen a lame man healed at this point in my life. Doesn't mean those things can't happen. Again, not normative, but I believe still God is working miracles in His church. But probably the greatest miracle I ever saw on display in front of my eyes was when I saw a spiritually dead man come to life in October of 1998. I saw my father, who was a good man by worldly standards, come to Christ when I was 13 years old, led to the Lord by a couple of ordinary guys at work. And he came home to my totally pagan family, and he put his resurrected spiritual life on display. The music he cha- uh, listened to, it, it changed. Sunday mornings changed. No longer for yard work and getting ready for a day of football. It was for the local church. His feelings about his possessions changed. He cared about them less. His feelings about alcohol changed. And I noticed that he cared a lot less about me learning to play baseball and a lot more about me learning to read my Bible. I remember wondering, as a teenager, is this a phase? Is this a hobby? But it wasn't. And seeing his dead heart come alive, seeing him trust in God, rely on him in front of us for for eight months steady, led my mom and I to go with him and meet this Jesus. Is God still using the healing, saving, miraculous power of Christ to draw sinners to himself? Every single day. And don't forget it. Church, you are a miracle. You are walking evidence of how God will take sinners and rescue them. You are living proof of God's saving power and how it changes and it transforms people beyond recognition. I remember laying a dear sister in our church to rest a few years back in this room. And her husband stood right here. And he said, you know how much she loved helping people. You know how much I love helping people. And if you knew us before we knew Jesus, you know it wasn't always that way. He might as well have said, behold, look at the power of God. Thomas Watson said, now when Christians are bespangled with holiness, our lives are walking Bibles. Don't underestimate what God will do with you as his walking Bible. He is still in the business of awing sinners with his power and drawing them to himself. Go be a testimony to the divine power of the king of the universe with your healed and resurrected life. The band's going to come back up and close us this morning with our final song. Going back to where we started, what about it? Is God still at work? in the midst of this evil world, in the midst of broken people, in the midst of imperfect churches? Well, the answer is yes. Emphatically, yes, Christ's ministry carries on through his body, and you are the hands and feet. 
Christ is using the faithfulness of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Christ is using His power to draw sinners to Himself. But you've got to back up and you've got to ask, is He working in you? Do you know Him? You must have His Spirit for His Spirit to be at work in and through your life. You want to know the power of this Jesus? I would love to talk to you after the service. Pastor Ben would love to talk to you after the service. The men who are up here serving the Lord's Supper, they can talk to you after the service. Our connection team could talk to you after the service. You could fill out the connect card that you got in your uh, worship guide today, and you can let us know that you want to know more about Jesus, that you want a relationship with Jesus. You can do that. But understand that you don't need to talk to somebody first. Right here in this room, while we're playing this song, you confess your sins to God and you cry out and you say, I trust in you, Jesus, to save me through your cross, through your resurrection. You put your faith in him, he will save you. Right where you stand. And then come tell us about it. But secondly, if you do know him, are you walking with him? You can't live like an atheist and think he's going to pour out his divine power through your life. And so maybe today you need to repent and remember your first love, and I urge you to do it. Satan wants you to think you're defined by your worst mistakes and that you're too busted and broken for God to use you. It's okay to say, actually, yeah, I'm pretty busted and broken. But you take the pieces of your life back to Jesus and you plead his forgiveness again. He loves nothing more than to forgive and then show off his power through a weak vessel. Father God, 